This is the beauty. Those connections are probably the most important thing as far as what will protect you against trauma. Each neuron can make a couple of connections and we have 87 billion neurons or as many as 30,000 connections. Now, not all of them don't make 30,000, but the numbers are that, that exponential, that important. And those connections are dependent on what we're doing with our brain. Well, hello everyone. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. Alzheimer's disease, for which there is no meaningful treatment, affects some six million Americans. And it's very important, totally empowering to understand that this disease is by and large preventable. I mean, you've heard about what we've been talking about for years, uh, but unfortunately there's not a lot of us out there in terms of neurologists who are really looking at how do we prevent this really devastating condition. We put together a special a couple of years ago called The Science of Prevention as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. And one of our guests, Dr. Dean Sherzai, uh, really shared some uh, powerful information about how we go about this. How do we go about preventing Alzheimer's disease? He and his wife, also a neurologist, have put out this new book called The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. It's one of the most remarkable books uh, on the topic I think I've ever seen. Let me tell you about the authors. Doctors Dean and Aisha Sherzai have been uh, experts in preventing cognitive decline for more than two decades. They are successful authors, speakers, and neurologists, and co-directors of the Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Health. The duo fuse their clinical experience, their medical research, and community-based preventive medicine program to basically redesign the way we approach brain health. Dean trained as a neurologist and scientist at Georgetown University and had fellowships in neurodegenerative diseases at the National Institutes of Health and UC San Diego. And Aisha has completed a dual residency in preventive medicine and neurology in Loma Linda and also a two-year fellowship in vascular neurology uh, at Columbia University. She has also attended a culinary art school and is a chef focusing on creating brain-healthy meals and is in the process of actually getting her master's in nutritional epidemiology, again, from Loma Linda University. So we're going to jump right in to look at this terrific book with its authors. Let's do it right now. Well, hello, Sherzais. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having us, David. It's a pleasure being here. Obviously, you didn't see the introduction, but in the introduction, I, was, uh, I, I spoke about how um, you know, by and large, we don't, but we should, or we do, of course, consider that Alzheimer's is pretty much a preventable situation. I think the, the number you quoted in your book was uh, 90%. So having said that, uh, I should let me start with you, if I could. Why is there such a pushback as it relates to people really getting their arms around this notion that, um, that Alzheimer's can be prevented? Why the brain is always last to the preventive medicine table? I think... Well, there are many reasons. Um, I, I think as human beings, we have a difficult time accepting that there uh, there is a concept of change in scientific narrative, that it's, it's okay for us to change our mind as we get more and more data. And this rigid belief system in something that was taught to us or that was brought onto surface for a long time has to change with, with constant conversations. And so... Um, 
now we actually have a lot of data showing us that Alzheimer's is a preventable diseases. And David, you know, I mean, we all, you know, trained in neurology, we go to the AN conferences, we go to the Alzheimer's Association conferences. And for a very long time, for decades, it was understood and accepted that there was nothing that one could do. But with the advent of better diagnostic tools and better understanding of lifestyle risk factors. And I think cardiology was way ahead of us. And we knew it that in the realm of cardiology, we could prevent diseases like heart attacks, congestive heart failure, things of that nature. Now we know that there are very important lifestyle factors that affect the brain on a regular basis and that devastating diseases like Alzheimer's can be prevented. I feel that in my bones right now because, um, for so long, there was so much pushback, and there is still pushback even today. That you know, that there is the sense that we're going to develop this wonder drug to ultimately fix the problem for and billions of dollars, and focusing on ridding the brain of, of this accumulation of beta amyloid. When you know what you said is so true, and and you mentioned that the that the heart doctors, the cardiologists, were kind of first to the table, and uh, Dean, you've made it very clear over the past few years that so many of the factors that are relevant in terms of heart disease have a play as it relates to the brain. So how are these preventive approaches so similar? So most people thought that the brain was a completely separate organ. It, it was almost like as if somebody from space came and placed this, this brain on top of a system that was completely separate, not knowing that they're contiguous, they're, they're part and parcel, and if anything, the things that affect the rest of the body affect the brain exponentially so. I mean, this is the most active organ in the body. Three pounds, 2% of body's weight, 25% of body's energy at any one point. It's overwhelmed. This brain was not expected to live past 30. You know, you're supposed to run away from the tiger, mate, and die. But now we're trying to actually alter that pattern. We're trying to live well into our 40s, 50s, and 60s and beyond. Now, as susceptible as that brain is, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yes, as susceptible as that brain is, it's also that resilient because it has such redundant and re systems that can give us profound protection. What we talk about is preventing Alzheimer's, but what we also talk about is actually growing your cognitive capacity well into your 60s, 70s, and beyond. And here's the thing: there's no gimmick here because we're not selling anything. I mean. It's, it's simple lifestyle factors that you can apply to continually grow this brain. The things that affect the heart are vascular factors, inflammatory factors, you know, oxidation, lip, uh, lipid dysregulation, glucose dysregulation, same things, but it also affects the brain exponentially so. So if we're going to affect the heart and everybody accepts it, and if we're going to affect cancer risk and everybody affects it, why wouldn't the same pattern plus an extra element that we're going to talk about not affect this amazing brain that's going to give you chances over and over again. We did a research project with Dilip Jeste, which I call him the most powerful scientist, pound for pound uh, anywhere. He's uh, got more than 900 publications. He's the head of Stein, who's the head of NIMH. We did this paper called Successful Cognitive Aging. And what we found was that the successful agers had redundant systems, which protected them not just against Alzheimer's and stroke and things of that nature, but also against heart disease and cancers and everything else. So that's the beauty of the brain. If you do those same things, it will give you a much bigger chance. It's been thought that there is, well, a heart smart diet, and then maybe a diet that has a role to play in, let's say, preventing type 2 diabetes and perhaps 
There are some dietary interventions one could employ uh, to, for cancer prevention, but why would it make sense that these would be unique and individualized diets when if we can just get the body back to being healthy, yeah. it's going to be good for everything, including that distant, far-off thing called the brain, which is made of stuff like everything else. It's not disparate. and. It's taken so long for people to get their arms around that. I completely agree with you. I think it's about time that we change that language. I, I'm not sure how it came to be. I suppose it's because you know some people in that particular field discovered it, but you're absolutely right. And like Dean said earlier, the same kind of arteries and tissues and systems that we have in the rest of the body exist in the brain as well. And I think our brain being a very, very active organ, essentially, you know, sucks up all that energy and there's much more going on in the brain. As you know, you know, the, the brain at any moment consumes 25, up to 25% of our body's energy. So obviously everything we do, whether it's the foods we choose to eat or the exercise or the movement that we, we own or mm -hmm. the kind of people we surround ourselves that challenge us cognitively, it all affects the brain. And I hope that we can actually change that language to show that if you take care of the brain or the body, you've, you've done the good for all of your systems at one time. Well, you're well on your way to changing it. And uh, as I said in the, in the setup, uh, this book, it, it, it's a real paradigm breaker because uh, you know a lot of us have been writing kind of these scientific books, everything referenced, and your book is just a pleasure to read. It accomplishes the same task. But, you know, Beck, Aisha, to your, your point, um, I remember in the day that we were taught that, the, that neurons and the brain were basically terminally differentiated, meaning we get one shot. You grow a number of brain cells by age 18, end of story. And then with the notion in the mid to late 1990s that this thing called neurogenesis could occur, you know, that just broke down barriers that humans could grow new brain cells. And as you know, there was an incredible amount of rejection of that uh, that idea till it was proven beyond anybody's doubt with this bromodeoxyuridine staining of these neurons growing in the brain, in the hippocampus, my goodness, and nobody could refute that at that point. You know, there was clearly a smoking gun, so we had to, we had to accept that. And similarly, what you're talking about now, that lifestyle changes can have a powerful impact on the brain because we get down to these fundamental mechanisms of blood supply, of inflammation, Dean, as you were saying, uh, free radical mediated stress. Uh, one of the things that you uh, talk about several times in the book is this N-E-U-R-O, this neuro acronym for a lot of stuff. So uh, maybe, Aisha, we'll start with you with the N. Where do we go with the N? It's a self-serving acronym, isn't it, David? Um, it is, and I love it. <laughs> uh, N stands for nutrition. And, and we, you know, luckily, it was the first... Uh, the first word in that acronym, uh, and it is important. And as you know, um, you you agree with that. You know what we put in our body. I think nutrition is the most environmental, uh, the most important environmental risk factors. What we put in our body either makes the brain and it pushes that process of neurogenesis and builds cognitive resilience, or it breaks it down. Um, and unfortunately, there is no way that people could actually see how food affects the brain on a day-to-day -day basis, on, a, on an acute uh, basis and chronically as well. But the kind of foods that we choose determine the infrastructure of the brain, which means the quality of the cells, the, the health of the connections between these cells, how the cells take in nutrients, whether they're glucose or fat, how they repair themselves, all of that 
is determined by the fuel or the basic blocks that we provide them. And multiple studies over the years have shown us that when people adopt a healthy diet and they make sure that they stay away from the unhealthy ones, which we are completely surrounded with, unfortunately, in our society nowadays, they tend to have better health, better brain health. Cognitively, they're sharp. They are mentally intact late into their lives. And they're able to stave off disastrous diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, some other neurodegenerative conditions, and definitely vascular disease of the brain like stroke. I'm a stroke specialist. And that's something that I see in the emergency room day after day after day. And if we, if we understand that food is an important part of it, I think we've done a great service. So, you know, when we wrote the 30 day Alzheimer's solution, food was a major component of that, um, of that book too, because of the, the, the very importance that I just talked about. David, um, when uh, Aisha was in uh, Columbia university doing her fellowship in stroke, um, and in the morning she would be in the ICU at night, she would be in culinary school. And there was a little bit of a pushback from the professors because initially they thought that this was, what are you doing? Why, why this emphasis on food? I wanted to actually go into nutritional medicine and I incorporated some of the things that I learned in culinary school. I remember typing recipes and printing them out for the patients because yeah, I mean, aspirin and statins and all the other antiplatelet medications are important. But if we don't talk about this huge component, which is food, I don't think we've done our job. And, and the amazing thing about the thing was that when she wrote the paper uh, on the Mediterranean diet and stroke risk in the California teacher study, the largest study in the country, and she won the <clears throat> youngest researcher award, all of a sudden, all the professors wanted to kind of work with her and realizing that this is possible, that you can actually introduce behaviors that can alter outcome. I mean, that's basically it. We as physicians, you, you know, we've gone through this medical system. We're not taught prevention. There's nowhere in our curriculum except a little touch of B12 deficiency and zinc disorder and, you know, copper deficiency, but there's no information about nutrition or lifestyle in our educational system. Well, if you became a vet, you would have had two years. Yeah. 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 Think about yeah. that. I mean, if it's important to know what your dog is eating, uh, why isn't it important to know what we should be saying to our patients <laughs> in terms so of keeping them healthy? Think about that. I love it's that. Crazy. I love that. I'm going to steal that, David. That's a great thought. Absolutely. <laughs> we are a little bit um, we, at odds would be too strong a term, but we differ a, a little bit. Your, your recommendations are pure vegetarian. And as you know that I have been over the years uh, more and more gravitating towards a plant-based diet, and I'll take my criticism for that. Totally fine. But I think that the basics about what we are saying is that quality nutrition matters, especially as it relates to the bioenergetics, uh, available fuel of the brain, insulin sensitivity, and certainly inflammation and free radical mediated stress. Mm -hmm. And how we accomplish those goals can have variances. There's, you know, the Mediterranean, the Predimed study, Mediterranean diet, et cetera, uh, showing reduced risk. But pretty much though we have some nuances of our differences, the goals, I think, are pretty in alignment. Wouldn't you agree? I, I yeah. definitely agree. Uh, so to be honest, I love this conversation because there's so much honesty in this. Uh, one of the most important things in our household, <clears throat> we have two teenagers and we have these walls where you can write on them and it says, to the best of our knowledge today, that, that's the most humble statement in existence and it's a scientific statement, meaning that I'm not beholden to my ideology 
I'm driven by by science. The fact that you on on your platform just said that I'm shifting a little bit tells us so much about your character, so much. And and I think just to come to the other side, we will say this: we're vegans. We're healthy vegans. There can be very unhealthy vegan, Absolutely. as we know. And we're vegans mostly because of environment, animals, and science. And we think the three superimpose. But where the science is contradictory, we talk about it. Not so much contradictory. For example, the fish data. We don't think there is data. We have some suspicions, but suspicions do not science make. They make first level science, meaning that if you have a suspicion, then you have to do multiple layers of validation to, to, to make sure. But we have suspicion that because of toxicity and all that, fish might be bad. But we don't eat fish. But the data to date doesn't exist that says fish is bad for your brain or for your health. So we can't, I mean, we've gotten our hits in the plant-based world saying, why aren't you talking negatively against fish? And we said we do as far as environment, what we're doing to the oceans and all that. But as far as health, the data is not there. I can't say to people. And then, when I, of course, when I go to communities and we do the largest community-based studies in the country, we can't say no meat, no cheese, no. We say if your transition is from red meat and processed meat, to fish, we're happy with you as far as health is concerned. So I love your approach for it to be science-based and, 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 and non-processed and making sure that it's as, 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 um, as, as uh, plant, you know, you, you're saying that uh, a few meals should be plant-centered and we definitely think that uh, a lot more. So I think there is a lot of synergy there. More importantly, well, I like I like the, the openness towards uh, the fact that you might change your narrative with time. I remember um, there was somebody that wrote an article about me in a very uh, popular magazine saying th that Dr. Promoter used to tell us to be on a low fat diet. I did. I, I absolutely did. 25 years ago, as it related, for example, to multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And that was the data that we were literally being fed at that time. Did I change my opinion on dietary fat? You bet I did. And why did I do it? Because that's what the science informed. You know, there was a time when science w had certain messages surrounding COVID. And uh, those messages have changed with time as we've learned more, not to be critical of people who are giving that information, but to be grateful that they're able to change their narrative based on learning. That's yeah. what this is all about. So we got to the end, which is nutrition, which obviously should lead the pack, in my opinion. What is the E all about? And uh, maybe, uh, Dean, you could yeah, take the E. Yeah, E is extremely important, as much as exercise. Ex e for extremely? Extremely. extreme. <laughs> e for extremely. Uh, no, <laughs> E is for exercise, and exercise is profoundly important, even more so for the brain than any other organ, I would say. For the same reason I said before, because the brain is such an active organ. Um, Exercise in many studies have been shown in the Harvard study that a, a brisk walk can reduce your chance of Alzheimer's by as much as 40% plus. And many other studies have shown the same thing. Ironically, there's no controversy where it comes to exercise uh, and everybody agrees exercise and there are no schools saying no exercise. Thank so goodness. That, thank goodness for yes. that. But, uh, you know, exercise is important for the brain for multiple reasons. One of the most common reasons is that it, it increases blood supply to the most vascular organ in the body. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and secondly, it also promotes these, these hormones that create growth of axons and dendrites, BDNF and GDNF, GDNF for glial cells, that are actually growing the connections between neurons. And thirdly, ironically, they promote cleansing of the brain. So 
we don't need to go all throughout the list, but it's, it's tremendously important. In fact, one of the first steps in our program, when we talk people, talk to people and say where to make the change is with exercise first. Why? Because if we want behavior change and we're behavior, so behavior change relies on success, success pattern, and then to build on that nidus of success. And there's nowhere do you see success more quickly and more effectively than a quick and effective exercise program. And with exercise, aerobic exercise, we know about. But the other thing that we have found about is weight-bearing exercises, such as leg strength, seems to be very strongly correlated with brain health as well. And longevity. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I would say perhaps challenging to look at the data from, for example, Dr. Erickson, University of Pittsburgh, uh, who, who shows not only increased size after one year of the hippocampus, a, a target area, if you will, for Alzheimer's, but correlation of that neurogenesis in the brain's memory center with elevation of what you described as brain-derived neurotrophic factor based upon exercising versus simply uh, getting a stretching program. My goodness, and improved memory function, I might add, as well. It's all there, and it's all free. You do have to buy a pair of sneakers, <laughs> but that's all we're selling today is go on and buy a, yourself a new pair of sneakers and get out and exercise. I, David, but I, think I know some of the greatest runners who don't wear any sneakers, and they're – so even, you know, I, I do some of my best running. We live on the beach, on the sand, so just go out and exercise. Well, the image that we just saw a, a couple of moments ago where you were talking about exercise – that was you with your children then uh, on the beach, correct? That's correct. right, yes, yes. We live in Redondo Beach, so we take advantage of the, the beautiful coast. Great, and it, it brings me to, uh, we're, I'm gonna abandon the acronym for a second, forgive me, but we can do whatever we want, it's our show. Uh, <laughs> it brings me to just, um, as I looked at those pictures uh, in the book of your children, the question of how has the challenge been with respect to having, I assume they're teenagers, uh, having teenagers uh, of parents like you who feel so dedicated to these lifestyle changes. I mean, I, I'll speak from our, my perspective as well, or our perspective, but how has it been? It's been a great journey. I think what we've focused on, and I'm so grateful for Dean. Dean and I have always been on the same page since day one. Um, and I'd love to hear your perspective too, because we're both parents. Um, we always focus on the why, you know, instead of uh, as parents, cleaning up the fridge and saying no this and no that and don't do that or you know negating everything we talk about where 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 the the, the need arises from and the why of of the decision and uh, in our family like dean said we always have this nerdy family meetings on sunday mornings where we sit down and we always give opportunity for everyone to talk about their choices and what they want to do moving forward and having a vision and you know a, a plan for life. So as far as nutrition is concerned, we say why is it important for us to eat in a particular way? And having you know a scientific perspective and both of us being scientists and the kids are also very interested in science, they're actually doing really well, both of them. Um, it, it's We help them make their own decisions and they realize that it is very important to eat healthy, not just for staying healthy, but to have a better brain, to have to be a better version of ourselves. And for us, because you know the environmental aspect always kicks in too, connecting what you put on your plate to the bigger picture of how you are as a human being and how you contribute to the world also becomes really important. So the connection of your immediate action to the bigger outcome and the bigger picture of life is something that we've worked on to develop and then it becomes easy. It's, 
it's an automated process so that we don't have to police them all the time. Well, they look very healthy, I'll, I'll say that. And uh, as far as how we've done it, I think it's been quite similar. Um, and uh, I would say that, um, you know, our kids are now in their 30s, so our messaging to them uh, changed over the years as we learned uh, uh, more and more. And not that we were wrong about what we were ascribing to years ago, uh, but it, it was based on, you know, the current data set at the time, and then that's changed with time. But I think for, for us, the proof has been in the pudding that they have seen how well they've done and how their health has been uh, in comparison to others, in comparison to their friends. So, I mean, who doesn't want health? So, uh, I think we're uh, at the U, are we not? Yes, but I, I just wanted to say something. We had the pleasure of talking to Austin, your son, and I tell you, <laughs> just speaking to Austin, it just increased my respect and love for you and your family tremendously. I mean, he's oh such an gosh. amazing person. Uh, you know, it's difficult to have, to have courageous, open conversation. You can get that sense immediately. Austin is an amazing, amazing human being. So just, just a little bit of a side. For the audience. If you didn't know him that well, I just wanted to kind of add that. For the audience, we're talking about Dr. Austin Perlmutter, Dr. David Perlmutter's son. He's just incredible. How, how do I respond to that? I mean, um, I, I, we're, we're super proud of both of our kids. Uh, our daughter is an artist, very well accomplished. Austin and I, as you know, wrote a book recently yeah. called Brainwash. And interestingly, you mentioned something, uh, Dean, I think a few minutes ago, uh, that um, uh, that really kind of played into what we were, were trying to go for in, in Brainwash. And that was that, you know, the first thing you might do with a patient might not be give them that diet, but might be exercise. Yeah. Because um, it's easier to implement. And as far as, as our book goes, it might pave the way then for better decision making, mm -hmm. then layer on the diet, the sleep, the meditation, the gratitude journal, all the other things that are important that we described uh, in relation to making better decisions and therefore getting a better outcome. So uh, who's going to handle the you? Uh, I'll take it. Sure. Yeah, take then you can out. take of the course. R. Um, so okay. speaking to that, as far as success, um, uh, my, my dissertation thesis was about CBPR, community-based participatory research, which means it actually basically says listening to the audience and then creating a plan together. That's basically it. And sometimes you're not there in person, but having the mechanism where that basically they are listening to themselves and creating a success plan for themselves. That's basically it. And, and, and you've said that beautifully. Uh, the U is incredibly important. There's a reason why it's in the middle. It's, uh, it's the central to neuro concept. And the fact that also you couldn't spell neuro unless it was U in the middle. But, <laughs> but U stands for po uh, positive stress and negative stress. Good stress and bad stress. And we do play off on the concept of good stress. There's a reason you have this highly energy-hungry organ. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that why this little three-pound organ needs all this energy. And it's, believe me, it's not just for finding mate, although that, that takes a lot of work for some <laughs> of us. Sorry. But, but it is, it's more than that. It has to continually capture data. If it's not capturing data, it gets the cue, the feedback. We keep talking about feedback mechanisms. Here's the biggest feedback mechanism. If the brain is not continually being challenged, it doesn't want to spend that much energy. So it pulls back all those connections. So one of the most important things, and I know we keep saying nutrition is most important. Actually, all of them are important. But stress management, giving good stress is extremely important and taking away bad stress. So how do we define that? 
bad stress, and this is actually a little bit of a jujitsu in the mind, but you define bad stress by activities that are not driven by your purpose, don't have clear timelines, don't have a clear direction, roughly that. And, and if they accumulate, it's a chronic state of sympathetic overdrive. It's a chronic state of uh, anxiety. It's a chronic state of tension. And that creates this incredible mountain of hormonal and growth, all these hormones that are discombobulated that ultimately affect the brain and the rest of your body. That's bad stress. And we have to address that. And we're writing something about that right now. Good stress is the other, which is purpose-driven, direction is clear or semi-clear, and you have clear timelines of success. We were talking about exercise, why we like starting with exercise. Walk 15 minutes a day. It's specific, it's measurable, it's, 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 you know what to do. Those are good stressors. Learn a language, or even better than that, learn 20 words in Spanish this coming week. That's clear, it's challenging, it pushes you. It's challenging for me more than the polyglot that Aisha is. But those are incredibly important for keeping the brain connected, but also creating a purpose-driven life. Well, and I am, tengo que uh, aprender 20 palabras en español en la semana que viene. Oh, <laughs> so there, were, <laughs> there you go. There we go. Um, then now we are at the uh, R, and I guess that's you, right. right? Yes. So R stands for restorative sleep, not just the kind of sleep where you take a pill and you're knocked out and you sleep for a number of hours, but the kind that allows you to go through each stage of sleep. And as you know, David, sleep was always ignored for many, many years. It was thought of something as, you know, unnecessary, but we now know that evolutionarily the body is actually at stake. It's, it's exposed and it's, you know, back then there were so many dangerous things going on in the environment, but our body needed sleep so much because the brain had to rest. The brain had to cleanse itself. So two things happen when we sleep. The brain cleanse, cleanses itself and we have these incredible mechanisms that we're learning more and more about, um, specifically the glymphatic system, which is essentially a janitorial system that gets activated when we hit the deeper stages of sleep. And there are these specialized cells, microglia and specialized systems that get rid of all the byproducts that are created by the brain during the day and the de deposition of amyloid beta protein, which are associated with Alzheimer's disease during sleep. And the second thing that happens is our memories get consolidated. So all of the information that we receive, they get placed in the you know proverbial file folder and cabinet in the brain so we can retrieve them better the next day. And we have studies that show that people who have chronic sleep disorders or even missing out on good quality sleep, uh, even after a day, tend to have higher levels of beta amyloid protein in their CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, and they tend to have smaller brain, brain shrinkage occurs when people don't sleep very well. And there are certain sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea, when people don't get enough oxygen when they're sleeping or when they have restless leg syndrome, they tend to have poor quality sleep. So making sure that one sleeps for seven to eight hours a day, and there are multiple ways of addressing sleep disorders with a sleep specialist, with a neurologist, um, to make it better. Sleep is so, so important. So, you know, the concept of sleep hygiene comes in that, you know, we probably can spend days just talking about what that means and how to apply it into their, into everybody's lives. Well, we've been really big on recommending wearables uh, like the Aura Ring, other wearable devices, so people can really begin to get a sense as to not just 
how long they think they're sleeping, but what is that quality? You know, how does it relate to getting into the stages of sleep that then seem to augment the function of this glymphatic system that you talk about? So, you know, these days we've, we've got the technology. I mean, I, I personally did have a sleep study, went to the lab, and it was, it was a very strange event. Yeah. I did it just because I, I kept telling people to do it, and I felt, you know, I, I can't be disingenuous. i got to do it myself yeah. if I think it's important. But that was before we had these wearables that I think are really very, very helpful. Yeah. And now we are, after R, I think comes O. Yeah, what is the O all about? Dean, this one's, I guess, back to you. Yeah, O is optimizing mental activity. I mean, we know that um, uh, up to age five, your brain is developing uh, its cellular connect connections. It's, it's growing at exponential rate as far as cells are concerned. In fact, there's a point where there's what programs cell death and you lose a, a significant number of cells. And what's left behind at, the, at that point is what's called brain reserve or the ultimate, the, the final brain structure. But that's not the end of the story because you continually grow the connections between neurons and the myelination happens even in early 20s, which is the surrounding of the, of the uh, connections. All that is extremely important. Those connections and the number of connections and the type of connections depend on what you're doing with your brain throughout life, especially those early age, but the, the, those early years, but even much later in life. This is the beauty. Those connections are probably the most important thing as far as what will protect you against trauma. So uh, the, when, when you, each neuron can make a couple of connections, and we have 87 billion neurons, or as many as 30,000 connections. Now, now, all of them don't make 30,000, but the numbers are that, that exponential, that important. And those connections are dependent on what we're doing with our brain. If all we're doing is uh, watching the New Jersey Housewives, which I'm not, I have nothing against the New Jersey Housewives. I'm, I have family in New Jersey. I love the show. But not many connections. But if we're pushing our brain around <laughs> our purpose, that's really challenging. You're learning. You're, you're, you're continually pushing the concept. That's making connections. And that's continually increasing your protection against future disease. Mm -hmm. Not only is it continually increasing your protection against future disease, it's also increasing your capacity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many studies, the non study, the blood uh, and taxi drivers, and in many, and our own, we did a meta analysis in 2018, which was published uh, in PubMed, looking at cognitive activities and MCI, which is a pre Alzheimer's stage. And what we found was cognitive activities definitely can increase your capacity and protection. This is not a small matter. So I tell people, no matter what age you are, if you find an activity that you love, and by the way, I know people talk about Sudoku and crossword puzzles or some you know, games on computer. Those are great. Those are fine. But more real-life activities are needed. They are more effective in many ways, at least up to now. When AI becomes fully functional, maybe then we'll have personalized games that will optimize our brain. We're not there. But what we do have now is playing guitar, learning Spanish, learning Chinese, learning Russian, learning uh, um, you know, all these other languages learning how to dance, um, um, running a, a non-for-profit, running a, you know, a, a, a business, volunteering, volunteering, cooking, figuring out <laughs> podcasts and all these new equipment all the time. You know, these are all challenging activities that are around your purpose, which means you're, you like it, which means that you can go grow through it, which means that you can put your stories and align your personal stories with that thing. Mm -hmm. 
they're challenging because you're pushing yourself at the rate that you can push yourself. And they're complex because they involve multiple domains of the brain, not just math, you know, adding some columns to nine. If you're playing guitar, you're reading the notes. I'm, I'm speaking personally. I'm a terrible guitar player. I mean, most, a lot of the people know that already. I've said it enough times. Um, oh, you're reading gosh. the notes, uh, and that's your left, uh, for most people, it's a left parietal. You're being creative. It's your right parietal. You're processing the information. It's frontal lobe. You're visually processing your occipital lobe. You're emotionally invested. It's your limbic system. You're being dexterous. It's your motor system. That's no Sudoku. That's your entire brain being activated around your purpose and for a protracted period of time because you love hearing your own cacophony irrespective <laughs> of all the noise you're causing for everybody else. So that's the kind of activity that continually grows your brain. And in our society, David, as you know, when people start their retirement, they have an assumption that that's it. You know, I'm not going to work and I'm just going to enjoy life. And as you know, there are studies that show that the fastest cognitive decline occurs when people retire because they tend to have very challenging and complex lives and jobs that keeps them sharp, that keeps those connections alive. And then as soon as that's gone, it's not replaced with anything else. So replacing that challenge level with something as challenging is important. Yeah, it's really a use it or lose it yeah. uh, kind of doctrine. You know, the Dalai Lama said that the, the brain we build reflects the life we lead. Mm -hmm. In other words, the choices that in terms of what we dedicate our attention to, it sort of gets back to Hebbian theory about neurons that fire together will wire together. Yeah. But we really are, are the sculptors of the functionality of our brains based upon the choices that we make. There's a picture in the book. Aisha, of an, you playing an instrument, and it was, was it a guitar? I thought a it was a four-string instrument. What was that? <laughs> it's a ukulele. Oh, it was a ukulele. Yeah. It's a small guitar. It's a, it, it originated in the Pacific area in, in Hawaii. And, you know, Dean played the guitar. My son plays the piano. My daughter is a singer. She's an amazing I'm a singer, singer, but I wanted an instrument, too. So ukulele was good because we could take it in the car and on trips. And so I've learned a couple of Elvis songs on it, and I'm practicing. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, Elvis. next time, you know, that's going to have to make an appearance. What is the tuning on that? Is it EADG? Yes, it is. Yeah. Very oh, simple. it is. So then, And, I, and I'm left-handed, so, so I actually just changed the directions of the thread. So it's, you know, for a left-handed person. Uh, you know, David, we... We were keynote speakers in American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and at the end, they asked us, they asked Aisha and Sophie to sing uh, the prayer. And we thought that we had a great talk, and I was all proud that, you know, we had uh, 4,000 people or something like that. And, and, then, and then after they got done singing, the whole crowd was standing and crying. I was like, okay, I will never know that feeling because I have no artistic capacity. 30 years of playing guitar, I still can't play oh, come on. Uh, no, one song he's well. He's good. He's, yeah. he's very good. But music is such an amazing thing. Yeah, the bottom line is you enjoy it. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, I, I got to tell you, um, I'm so glad that we had some time together today. You know, aside from the book and all the other things, just to be able to connect and, and chat with you guys today has just been so rewarding for me. So thank you for that. Likewise. Same here. It was so nice speaking with you and... Uh, you know, we 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 look we were looking forward to this conversation, and and we're so grateful to be connected with you now face to face. And I think this is the beginning of many more conversations in the future, hopefully. Oh, I am I am all in. Let's let's make sure we do it again. Absolutely. So we'll talk soon. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you, you so much Thank for having so much. us. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Wow. Uh, again, look at the dedication of these two individuals and what they are really doing with their lives in terms of outreach 
at their community level and now national, if not global level, uh, to really get the word out that the choices we make day to day in terms of our lifestyles have a huge role to play in charting our brain's destiny. Thank you for joining me. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter here on The Empower Neurologist, and I will certainly be back soon. Bye for now.